Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We're going to have a news roundup for you today, which will cover Prime Day, which happened the day before we're recording this. Uh, we'll talk about Twitter's recent live video deals and also their trial of live video with Wimbledon recently. And then we'll talk about the Surface as a Service announcement that came out of Microsoft's partner event this week. Uh, question of the week will be uh, about the economics of mobile gaming and what they tell us about the future of Pokemon Go, which has obviously kind of exploded onto the scene this week. Uh, we'll talk about how Pokemon Go is different from some of the other games that have been popular and how it might avoid some of the pitfalls that have hit some of the other uh, companies in the space. And then our third topic, we're going to talk about Facebook live video and specifically about how it was used in the uh, aftermath of one of the shootings by police officers in the US last week and kind of what this tells us about Facebook live video and where it might go from here and some of the um, interesting questions that kind of arise from that. I'm going to try to be very sensitive to the subject matter there and this will not be a political discussion. There's obviously very strong feelings on various sides of the issue but we'll talk about the technology aspects specifically and some of the sort of cultural aspects about uh, what this technology does uh, to our society when it's available in this way and used in this way. And then uh, finally we'll wrap up with a weekly pick in which Aaron will recommend an app that he's been enjoying recently. So to kick off with the news roundup, we had Prime Day yesterday. Um, one of the most interesting summaries I thought of this was um, came from a, the Twitter account of The Wirecutter. They have a special Twitter account that just highlights deals. Uh, and they uh, posted a tweet about this, which basically said that they'd been kind of evaluating all the deals from Prime Day as they went along. And I think there were 7,000 plus deals that were advertised on Prime Day, of which these guys figured something like, I think the number was 60-something, were... Uh, good deals, uh, which meant you know a significantly good discount on an item to make it worth buying, which I thought was a great summary. It was certainly my own experience of it as well, where I jumped on first thing in the morning just to see what was available, and I actually had half a dozen items in my cart at one point, and uh, as I started to look through it again, I was like, wait a second, why I don't actually want most of this stuff. It's just it's a good deal on something I don't actually need to buy right now, and I suspect a lot of the actual purchases are along the same lines, but. If you actually consider whether things really are a good deal and whether it really is something that you need, it starts to look quite different. So what was your experience, Aaron? Did you buy anything? Uh, I was so close. In fact, I, I watched a few items go by. There was a like a, 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 an outdoor water filter filtration system that I was close to buying. I, the, I had the same reaction as you, though. sort of like, man, there's nothing that like I've been intending to purchase that's on this list. And, and actually, the wire cutter's analysis reflected what was most frustrating for me about it yesterday was when you have over 7,000 deals to comb through, discoverability is a huge problem. All yeah. 7,000 could have been good deals, but that doesn't mean any of those items are things I was actually in the market for. And I know Amazon tried a bunch of different ways to enhance discoverability. So if you went to the Prime Day page, they had like deals expiring soon, trending deals and that kind of stuff. But but at the same time, it was just like, uh, you know, I mean, there were one or two things that I thought, oh, I'm in the market for this. And I searched and there was nothing for sale in that category. I don't know. I, when you have that many, I, they kind of have a problem, right? Because you want to have yeah. a ton of different deals to promote the day. But the more of them you have, the harder it is for people to discover the stuff that they may actually want to buy. Yeah, and they did have some useful filters where you could say, I want, you know, only interested in things that are over 50% off. And you could filter by department and things like that. And I, I found that I was 
literally uninterested in anything that wasn't electronics for whatever reason. I just wasn't right. interested in anything that outside of kind of tech and gadgets and so on. And so I usually filtered by that and then I filtered by the biggest discounts and things. And you also have to filter by what's actually available rather than something you've missed or something that was going to be coming later. And they were filters, right. but it was a lot of work to get to stuff that you might actually be interested in. And then even then it was cluttered up with a lot of stuff that was uninteresting and was quite hard to filter that stuff out. Um, the, the that's things the problem. That, hmm. It felt like a job. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of hard work. And, you know, it's just, I mean, obviously on, on, you know, Black Friday and so on, it's, it's a heck of a lot of work too for people that go out looking for deals. You have to line up early and, and push people out of the way and so on. You know, the online stuff has always promised to be better than that. But in some ways, this is kind of becoming its own form of work, which is interesting in its own right. Having said all of that, of course, um, you know, the numbers were out from Amazon this morning. And obviously, they were not hard numbers, but the classic sort of Amazon percentage type numbers, but up very significantly on last year, which meant it was one of their biggest days ever, if not the biggest day for Amazon ever, um, which, you know, means it's working uh, as a strategy, which I guess is the only thing that's really important to Amazon, but sounds like neither of us had a particularly good experience with it. No, but it is big news to have your biggest day in July. Absolutely. Any month. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not exactly strong for retail. No, absolutely. And that means that Q3 and Q4 will be big for them, which is interesting. Um, right. Let's move on to talking about Twitter. And there's a kind of couple sets of news with Twitter live video. One is that Twitter trialed its live video feature with the Wimbledon Tennis Championships over the past couple of weeks. Uh, this is something that obviously is going to be a big deal when the, the NFL deal kicks in later this year, and that's something we've talked about before. But they, they were using Wimbledon as a sort of trial run for that and had a new interface with, with how they, they present that to, to users, which is interesting. And then this week there was news about several different deals. They signed one with Bloomberg, and they had a couple of others as well for live video that will be streamed through Twitter as well. Um, this interesting stuff, you know, this is something that Jack Dorsey said several months ago is going to be a big focus for the company, and that's clearly playing out now. What do you make of all of this? It feels like a really big pivot for them as a company, but and so in that sense, I like I, I like the idea behind it. I, I, we've criticized Twitter on multiple occasions for being glacially slow in trying to innovate and moving into live video. Is is the kind of thinking that that I like. I, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to go for them in practice, though. I mean, this is the company that was famous for the fail well right. years ago for mismanaging capacity problems when it was growing so quickly. And live video is that times a thousand. So mm -hmm. we'll kind of see how it holds up because even really um, well established firms that have been doing video for a long time, like Yahoo, have, have choked, you know, in various times when they've had big interest in live video streams. And so. I, you know the, but but I guess I like the idea. I like the, I like the idea of trying something big and different because I feel like Twitter needs that and they need more of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and this is where it's worth talking about the interface that they use for the Wimbledon stuff because it's an interesting mix where you get the video and tweets together. And so you, if you held your phone in portrait mode, then you got uh, a video at the top which shrunk to a smaller size as you scrolled through the tweets, and the tweets kind of below it were sort of somehow curated but very, very loosely. And that's something that they need to work on because it, it, it at off at times, and I checked it a few times during Wimbledon, it was pretty messy. It was a lot of stuff from lots of different people. Um, there was porn in there. There was all kinds of stuff in there. I thankfully didn't see that, but somebody on, on Recode captured it. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a problem. It was just, it felt like it was a bit like the dregs. It was kind of every possible thing about Wimbledon rather than the best stuff. And given what they've done with 
moments and other stuff like that, you'd think that would be better at this point. So that was an area where they clearly needed to improve. But I like the idea of being able to see the video and the tweets at the same time and have those in context kind of updating live as you were watching something. Uh, if you'd rotated to landscape mode, you then got full screen video and the tweets kind of disappeared. On an iPad, uh, the presentation is slightly different, but that's probably a better device actually for looking at video at a decent size plus tweets at the same time. Good to see them playing around with this stuff and you know uh, it sounds like this was something of a test both of the model and of sort of load and that kind of thing for the NFL stuff. The thing is they didn't promote it at all. It was actually really hard to find and the only way I found into it was by actually going to various articles that had written things about it and following a link from there and I think it was probably very deliberate on Twitter's part that they didn't want too many people latching onto this video and, and overloading their servers. Uh, but that raises an interesting point of how do you really test the load for something that's as big as, say, Thursday night football uh, where, when you're not promoting heavily other stuff that you're doing that, that people are tuning into live. And so some of these other deals may help with that, may help them sort of build up server capacity in a way that's sustainable over time that kind of pays for itself. It's also interesting that most of the deals they've done seem to be additive. So they have no real exclusives on any content. It's all stuff that's already licensed elsewhere and that will also be on Twitter, which makes the rights really cheap, which is something that we've talked about previously when in the context of those NFL rights. Uh, but it also means that they don't get the right to sell most of the advertising around it. So the revenue opportunity around some of the stuff is going to be interesting. Is there one at all? Uh, and if so, what is it and how does that work? How big is it? And um, you know, over time, does that actually create a significant new revenue stream? Or is this just a way to get people to spend more time on Twitter and engaging with tweets? And that's where they actually show them the ads. And that's been the big question for Twitter from the very, very, very beginning. Right, <laughs> right is what is where's the revenue model? So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. So I'm, I'm interested. I wouldn't go so far to saying I'm optimistic, but but it is interesting to see them trying something pretty fundamentally new. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, um, the third news roundup topic is Microsoft's announcement of the Surface as a service uh, offering for businesses where businesses will be able to essentially get devices on a subscription model uh, for their employees and it'd be bundled up potentially with software and, and obviously cloud software, software as a service um, in various cases uh, for specific employees so that you get a bundle that makes sense for each individual worker. Um, it's an interesting model. Obviously we've seen things like the iPhone upgrade program and the carriers uh, installment plans for smartphones and so on. Those are mostly consumer focused and this is one of the first times that we've seen this kind of model emerge in the enterprise um, but it's it's a logical step and it's it's interesting to me to think about Steve Ballmer who put in this kind of uh, devices and services strategy at Microsoft that you know didn't pan out all that well in some ways and has kind of largely been replaced by new ways of thinking under Satya Nadella but at the same time you know if you look at what Microsoft's actually selling today it's increasingly devices things like the Surface, the Surface Book, the Nokia devices and so on and now services, and whether that's software as a service, whether that's now devices as a service, you know, even if it wasn't a great kind of rallying point for a strategy, it's certainly very descriptive of where the vast majority of their revenue is going to come from going forward. And so it's interesting to see them playing around with this model and kind of pioneering it in the enterprise. And it's funny because it does feel like pioneering, but if you think about it, this is the way Dell, I mean, Dell built a, a huge, huge revenue stream leasing computers to corporations rather than selling them which is an old-fashioned way of saying hardware as a service. Right. And, uh, you know, because it would come with all this, you know, all the support and other things baked in as part of the lease, and that was, uh, that was a huge source of revenue for Dell as it grew, you know, primarily in the 90s. And, 
and so it does feel new, but at the same time, it's, you know, different devices, similar business model. I, I do think there's a lot of potential in it, though, and, and it'll be exciting to kind of see where it goes and what happens for the surface. And I think, I think if, especially, I think small business is an interesting space for that. I, you know, where we're forking over money for a Surface tablet, like just paying cash to own it and then have to worry about it. I think there's a lot of appeal in just renting that kind right. of an equipment as far as the company is concerned. And you don't have to worry about, you know, about keeping it as equipment and depreciating it for tax purposes or any of that stuff. You just mm -hmm. pay a monthly fee and you have the hardware you need. I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's very interesting. And I suspect we'll see a lot more of this kind of stuff uh, in the coming months as well, you know, potentially from other computer vendors, but also from software makers and so on as they try to tap into the enterprise, which is where, um, you know, a lot of the, the growth and especially market share growth is going to be for some of these companies. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. Um, the question this time around is, what do the economics of mobile gaming tell us about the future of Pokemon Go? And obviously, if you've been living under a rock for the last week, you don't know what we're talking about, but otherwise you probably do, in that Pokemon Go seems to have burst onto the scene and immediately become enormously popular. It's very hard to avoid in the popular media or even uh, in certain places in the real world at the moment because lots and lots of people seem to be spending lots and lots of time playing it. Uh, but we wanted to kind of take a step back and look at the economics of the mobile gaming market and uh, what's happened to some of the other companies that have had big hits in the past and then use that as a way of uh, talking about Pokemon Go, where that's come from and where it might go in the future. And we'll also talk a little bit about uh, augmented reality and, and how this plays into that too. So I've been doing the research on this and so Aaron will be asking the questions and I'll be doing my best to answer them. So this has been a fascinating, fun thing. It's a fun thing when you have kids. I have four boys and, and they're all just right smack dab in the age group for this. In fact, uh, um, my, let's see, it was my, my nine-year-old who last week as we were walking around together as a family uh, with a couple smartphones out trying to catch Pokemon, he raised his arms up in the air and, and, and shouted, I'm so excited my family is finally into Pokemon. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> it was a dream come true for him. It really is. It's yeah. been fun. I still feel like I know nothing about these, and so I turned to my nine-year-old to tell me what the heck a, a Squirtle is. But um, anyway, uh, so let's start, though, Yan, with this question. Uh, let's talk about the economics of mobile gaming generally, because I think we need that as context to get started. So why don't you, why don't you kick us off there? Yeah, and so it's, and we've talked about this a little bit previously, but mobile gaming is a huge chunk of the overall mobile app market. Um, you know, depending on the platform you look at, it could be 75 to 80, 90% of revenue for mobile applications in general comes from mobile games. And the vast majority of mobile game revenue comes from this uh, free to download in app purchase type model where you pay nothing to actually download the application and then the revenue comes essentially entirely from sort of one to two percent of users who spend a disproportionate amount of money buying various in-app items and typically it's some kind of in-app currency which might be coins it might be uh, gasoline or something like that some sort of profile points that whatever the context of the game is but it's usually some kind of in-app currency that then either unlocks features allows you to move more quickly through the game allows you to acquire virtual goods within the game that make your character or your car or whatever more powerful um, and so that's kind of the standard business model. And we've seen a whole range of companies uh, starting in the online gaming market, actually, and then moving into mobile gaming over the last eight or nine years or so, um, 
build businesses and quite big businesses off the back of this. Um, and so uh, some of the best examples of that are Rovio with Angry Birds, which actually has a different business model, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, Zynga, perhaps, was the kind of original company in this space, which made it really big originally off the back of Farmville, which was a Facebook game, and then pivoted into mobile gaming over the last several years. King Digital, which had another one of these huge games. And then uh, perhaps most recently, Supercell, which um, has a Clash of Clans game and was uh, recently sold to Tencent in China, as we talked about on a recent news roundup. Um, you know, the economics are such that you can do very, very well off a game that sort of explodes in popularity. But what often happens is that these companies uh, scale up their businesses very rapidly off the back of that fast revenue growth. So they employ lots and lots of people. And, and you know, the companies that I've just mentioned, with the exception of Supercell, employ thousands of people. Uh, and then find that the uh, big hit off the back of which they built their businesses and in some cases IPO'd uh, suddenly starts to fade and they can't justify uh, keeping on all those people and they have to find other ways to put them to work and they try to build successor games and other games that have similar success. And here's the problem. The business model is very well established at this point. You know that this is how you make lots of money in mobile gaming is free to download game, make it addictive, uh, create some kind of in-app purchase model and then rely on 1% to 2% of your users uh, making those in-app purchases on a monthly basis and, and that drives your revenue. That model is easy. The hard part is creating a game that actually takes off in such a way that that business model pays off in a big way that justifies kind of having several thousand employees. And for each of these companies, that's been the challenge is they've had one huge hit and then have been unable to replicate that success, even though the business model may have been borrowed and used for other things. And so for Zynga in particular, you know, their, their biggest year was the year before their IPO. And they've kind of not gone downhill ever since. They've actually had a slight uptick in the last year or two, but they're certainly a shadow of their former selves uh, and have been unprofitable ever since that year as well. And so, you know, they've had a hard time with things. King Digital uh, launched much later off the back of a mobile game, but seems to be now on the same sort of trajectory where its revenues are heading downhill, uh, successor games are not as big as the original one, so on and so forth. Uh, Rovio is an interesting one, again, different business model. It was uh, some games were completely free, other games you had to pay to buy the game in the first place. Um, and uh, so they're a much smaller company because they didn't tap into that same IAP model, at least early on. Uh, and they've got offshoots like the Angry Birds movie that came out recently and so on. Supercell is interesting in that um, they both still seem to be growing in the sort of second and third year after the takeoff of their big hit, but also they only have 180 employees. Um, so at the end of last year it was 180, the end of the previous year it was 148. So in you know their biggest year ever, they only added you know, 32 employees. And so they've managed to stay extremely lean, even while developing new games and that kind of thing. And so they're enormously profitable as a company. And the economics are such that even if you know, the, the original hit were to taper off and start to go into decline and the new hits weren't anywhere near as big, they'd still be fine because they're making sort of $12 million a year per employee. Uh, and so they can afford to make substantially less in revenue and still be quite profitable. So that's an interesting sort of exception, but the economics tend to be big hits drive massive revenue that drives scale, that then drives, uh, you know, revenue decline over time as the hit fades and inability to replicate it. And then, you know, uh, lack of profitability over time. King's earlier in that, they're still profitable at this point, but the writing seems to be on the wall there a little bit too. So that seems to be kind of the pattern for a lot of these games. 
Well, and it is it does seem like a well-established pattern now. I mean, it's happened enough times that it feels like one. So so is is Pokemon Go going to be different? I mean, how how is the game different first of all from these other games or is there anything else that's that's different here that that we should draw our attention to? Yeah, I feel like Pokemon Go is whatever the positive equivalent of a perfect storm is, you've got lots of different factors coming together to make it really compelling and that have kind of contributed to this massive um, leap in popularity uh, just since it launched last week. And uh, it's worth going through what those are because it makes it somewhat unique. Um, and, and literally, it is unique in terms of how fast it's grown. But um, you've got, on the one hand, uh, and it's worth looking at the background very quickly, so there's a company called Niantic Labs that was sort of incubated within Google for quite some time. And um, they basically were designed to uh, build interesting new experiences off the back of Google, Google's mapping assets. And so the guy who ran it was a guy who'd run Google Maps previously, and um, you know he wanted to do this as his new project within Google, and so he was sent off to do this, and they, they came up with something called Field Trips, I think, that was designed to kind of surface interesting things near you and so on using that mapping data. And then a game called Ingress was the second thing that they really produced uh, and released to the public. And Ingress was uh, a game that involved going out and hunting for items in the real world. You played in teams against other teams and try to win and, and compete against them and so on um, and uh, use the Google mapping data essentially to do that. And so Ingress became um, something that was used by a very small number of people, but they were very dedicated to it. They really loved it, um, but it was marginal. In the context of Google, it was really nothing. Um, and at some point, Nintendo and others expressed an interest in uh, doing more with this technology. And so Google span off Niantic Labs uh, to give it the freedom to do these partnerships, which Google kind of couldn't be seen to be doing because it would seem to be favoring one sort of app store vendor over another. So they span it off. And then Pokemon Company and Nintendo and Google made an investment too, and they contributed about $30 million to help develop what became what we now know as Pokemon Go. And that was kind of announced a few months ago that they were working on this and then released last week. And it brings together the gameplay from Ingress, um, which, again, was very popular with a small number of people that really got into it, uh, with you know this Pokemon IP and branding and characters and everything else, which is obviously very familiar in its previous incarnations to... Uh, a variety of people, most of them younger. Um, you had Nintendo that obviously is a big brand that actually brought the game to market. And so you have um, the Nintendo brand, you have the Pokemon brand, you have this great kind of gameplay, you have the Google assets behind it, uh, and it's free to download. And so all those things together, um, plus I think the other thing is launching in the middle of the summer, uh, when frankly a lot of people have more time on their hands than usual, uh, when it's more practical to go outside, than perhaps it might have been at other times of year. I think all of those things together have kind of contributed to this. And so in some ways, it's very different from some of these previous hits that we've been talking about. The, the companies I mentioned earlier, each of them kind of came out of nowhere with a big hit that they created internally and organically, uh, just happened to do very well, and then built a big business around it. In this case, you have you know Google as a well-established company, Nintendo as a well-established company, Pokemon, and their IP has been around for 30 years or something at this point. Um, you know, this very different model from most of the sort of big hit games. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of where it came from. And, and it does use the in-app purchase model. So you buy coins and so on, which help you uh, with your various quests inside the game. Uh, so it uses that in-app purchase model. And, and as such, it's not just one of the top free games, but it's also in the top grossing charts and so on too. It's already making lots of money from that. And you've seen Nintendo's stock price soar off the back of this, you know, massive boost to their stock price since this launched. 
It's very interesting, though, because of the revenue that the game generates, uh, I've seen some estimates that Nintendo only gets about 10% of that. Apple obviously gets about a 30% cut from uh, the revenue goes through the Apple App Store, and, and Google gets a similar cut from the stuff that goes through the Android App Store, and then another cut, obviously, from their stake in the venture. Uh, Nintendo company, I think, gets 20 30% as well. So Apple and Google arguably get about three times as much from this as Nintendo will in the short term. But... Um, you know, very, very successful, obviously, in terms of uh, interest and in a much more visual way than usual in the real world as well, because people are out and about trying to capture these things. What feels crazy to me about this is that it, I feel like we have a month's worth of news for this game crammed into a week. I, I mean, it has been so accelerated. This feels like the sort of thing that should have launched a month ago and has now hit this critical mass right. rather than launching last Wednesday. Yeah. Um, no, which, it's interesting. I mean, just, just the App Store charts. I mean, you can look at the chart. Like App Annie is a company that has these charts, for example. There's a bunch of others out there as well. And I looked up the App Annie chart. And usually what you see is this line that kind of starts at the bottom left of the chart and then shoots up to somewhere near number one or eventually number one and then kind of stays there for a while and drops down again. I looked up the, the chart for Pokemon Go, and it literally is a line that simply appears at the number one spot in one day. And even if you could look at the hourly view, it seems to just start at number one. And it's just stayed there, and it's totally unprecedented. It, it is, and, and it, it makes me wonder, where in the world does it go from here? I mean, I realize that they're launching in other countries, and that's coming soon. Um, but uh, but beyond, I mean, beyond sort of global reach, I mean, where does the game go from here? Yeah. No, it's a great question, and, and this is the thing, and this is where we kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, the, the history here is that this stuff tends to build, and with it, in the case of uh, King and Supercell, for example, um, and to some extent Zynga, you kind of you look back at their financials and you kind of see there's a year where it's zero, there's a year where there's maybe a few million in revenue, and then there's suddenly a year where it's hundreds of millions in revenue. And so somewhere between that kind of year zero, year one, and year two, so there's this breakout year where it becomes a multi-hundred million dollar company and generally kind of stays at that sort of scale for several years afterwards. And uh, But it's a matter of months usually to build up to that kind of level and then uh, they stay at that level for maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years supercells and it's uh, sort of second year post-breakout where it's still growing. So that's doing uh, unusually well in terms of sustaining the momentum. Uh, but a lot of these companies you know, take at least a year, if not two, to really peak and then they kind of slowly... Uh, fall from that peak over time as well. Um, this has risen so rapidly that it kind of breaks that traditional model. Um, but it makes me wonder whether it's going to fade equally rapidly. Uh, and there's several things that make me wonder about that. One is um, that this is not just time intensive, because a lot of these games are time intensive, and that's partly why they make a lot of money, is people spend a lot of time on them and therefore they spend money on them. But this is also labor intensive. You have to actually go out and about into the real world and you have to travel uh, to find these things. And if you live in maybe a major metropolitan area where there's lots and lots of this stuff going on around you, perhaps you don't have to travel quite as far. But inherently, this is the kind of thing that you can't just do in spare moments here and there while you're sitting at your desk or waiting for your bus or traveling home or anything like that. There are very specific characteristics that have to be in place for you to be able to play this game. And it involves lots of free time and specifically, specifically a, being outdoors, B, moving around quite a bit to actually capture some of this stuff. And so I wonder to what extent that's sustainable over time as, as the summer fades, as students go back to school, as people who may be on summer vacations have to go back to work, as the weather worsens and it's less fun to be outside, uh, as the novelty wears off in general, 
Um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of nostalgia here from people that played Pokemon in various forms in earlier phases of life. And, you know, that generally fades pretty quickly too. You know, you enjoy watching the TV shows from your youth a little bit, but at some point you remember, okay, it really wasn't that great after all, and you kind of move on to something else. Um, and so I do wonder if there are a lot of factors here that mean it's going to fade fairly quickly. So the biggest question I've had in my mind is just, you know, is this something they're still going to be talking about in the same way a week from now, a month from now, uh, let alone, you know, in October, November, December, when everybody's back at work or school and the weather's worsening and so on and so forth. So I do wonder whether the, the rapid rise may be kind of misleading in terms of how much staying power this thing has, that in fact it may fade even more quickly than some of these other games as well, that the other games benefit from the slow ramp and new kind of co cohorts of people discovering it. If everybody discovers it at once, it's possible that everybody will abandon it at once as well over a much shorter and more compressed period of time. And so I do worry about that. Um, and uh, there's the whole question of kind of what this means for Nintendo too, because Nintendo, as I mentioned, their stock price has done really well off the back of this. Uh, but they've really resisted the mobile market as a way to uh, use their IP to, to create new revenue opportunities. And, um, you know, this is the first time that they've really done this successfully. And yet they've done it largely by using things created elsewhere and IP belonging to other people and therefore have a very small stake in it. They obviously have lots of IP that they own directly. Mario Brothers has been mentioned, for example. There's others uh, that they could do this with. You know, what else could they do with mobile gaming that would kind of replicate the success here that would tap into existing IP and the familiarity of that in these new contexts. And isn't it time for Nintendo to kind of move a bit faster to really start doing some of this stuff? Because I worry that they have this massive success if they don't follow it up quickly, then people will just go back to feeling the same way they have about Nintendo, which is a company that seems bizarrely averse to trying to take advantage of what's going on in the mobile market. It is exciting to think about more Nintendo properties on uh, the iPhone and Android phones. I think largely because there's still so much potential um, and and so, so, so many more devices for people to be able to play these games. I, what's interesting to me about this is the way Nintendo has, has essentially come in to test the waters with what on their end was a, a, a pretty dang low risk. I mean, mm -hmm. they didn't have to build Ingress, right, which is the backbone, right. or Google Maps for that matter. And so it is kind of exciting to think that hopefully Nintendo will look at this and go, oh, maybe people do want Mario and Zelda on their iPhone. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, well, a lot of what you were saying relates to the augmented reality aspects of this game, which right. really are unique. I mean, you have to get out and move around. And also, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the geolocation aspect of this, and then there's also the camera aspect where you can have your camera turned on so it looks like you're catching these Pokemon and in the real world around you. Right. Um, what does the success of Pokemon Go say about augmented reality? Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of people say, oh, this is, you know, AR's moment. And I think there's some truth to that in that it's, you know, the first sort of really mainstream game. I mean, it's this huge game as we've been talking about in general, but it's the first one that really takes advantage of AR. And there are specific references to the term AR even within the app. And so you can say, oh, this is a great moment for AR. But what's interesting about it is it's a mobile smartphone game. It's not a headset type AR game. And so you have companies like Microsoft and Magic Leap and others that are investing enormous amounts of money in augmented reality and mixed reality hardware. And yet here you have the first big hit it has nothing to do with those headsets. It's, it's playable on any smartphone essentially, uses you know the devices and the hardware that we already have 
doesn't require any sort of specialist accessories or anything like that, you know. Uh, and that's what makes it so compelling is it's available to pretty much anybody, as you were saying just now about, you know, the value of those other Nintendo assets and what they could do with smartphone gaming. Um, and so I think it's a double-edged sword for AR in some ways. On the one hand, it's this great PR for AR, as it were. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't really benefit the headset manufacturers at all. They're the ones that are really plowing a lot of the money into this stuff. Uh, this doesn't necessarily directly benefit them and in fact kind of highlights how maybe smartphones may be better devices for at least some AR uh, interfaces. Um, the other thing that's interesting here is that obviously this makes use of that Google Maps data, uh, which is great for Google um, and you know that data is available to others as well and obviously um, you know, it takes advantage of hardware from both Apple and Google as well, uh, but it's outdoors. And as I've already talked about kind of the, the, my worries about the sustainability of a game that requires you to be outside and moving around a lot, what if you recreated something like this, but it worked indoors? So you could play it in your home, for example, or in your office or at your college or where your dorm room or wherever else it might be. And you can't do that with Google mapping data for the most part. There's a little data inside some bigger buildings, but generally speaking, that data is not available. But that's where things like Google's Project Tango and the phones from Lenovo come in. Uh, you know, those phones are designed to capture indoor spaces uh, in ways that they can be used for AR. And so there's this other interesting opportunity that's related to all of this, which is how could you take a Pokemon Go type experience that lives outside and bring it indoors using, say, Project Tango and things like that. And obviously, unless Project Tango becomes widespread enough that it's in lots of phones, it's, it's not going to have much impact. But it does highlight the possibility for games that do use the real-world environment and make that an interesting part of the game itself. And so I think there's that whole other opportunity that is worth mentioning, at least briefly. The other thing that this kind of highlights for me is just the the downsides to AR and things that take place in the real world. And there were some news stories about how the, the Holocaust Museum here in the US was, uh, a, it's popular and the way that um, Pokemon Go seems to work, the engine basically puts lots of objects in places where lots of people go. But of course, in some places that's utterly inappropriate. And so the Holocaust Museum is apparently a place where lots of these um, characters are available to be snapped up but that's not appropriate and and the makers of the app don't seem to have really thought about okay which places are and are not appropriate and we've seen religious buildings like churches and synagogues and so on uh, be popular on the app for the same reason and and it feels like there's more work that was needed from the perspective of developers to try to uh, ring fence some of these places and make sure that some of them stayed kind of off limits to this kind of thing so there's clearly more thought to be had and done about you know what's appropriate in the context of AR and what limitations you have to place on things that really do play, take place in the real world and have real world implications. We've seen stories unfortunately about accidents happening because people are doing this while they're driving or uh, while they're walking on the street or whatever and you know clearly uh, again you know both people need to exercise more common sense in many cases, but makers of apps and games like this need to think through what the implications are of doing things specifically outside and in the real world. Uh, it applies to VR to some extent too. I think we've probably all seen videos of people using VR headsets in a completely immersive experience and running into walls or hitting the furniture or whatever. Um, you know, this is something that doesn't just apply to AR on smartphones, but it's another interesting angle of you know this technology and how it needs to get better and. The uh, HTC Vive, for example, does quite well with kind of mapping out a room and then putting real-world objects in the virtual environment so that you can kind of navigate around in the real world a bit more easily. But there's another aspect of things that needs to be thought through a bit. Well, and so this brings me to maybe one last question before we move on from the 
from the topic. The, the AR aspects seem to be a potentially exciting revenue source for Nintendo in that, um, and I've already seen a lot of speculation about this, and that if I was a shop owner or a restaurant owner, I could set up a Pokestop or even a gym and pay for that. Uh, so that's at my location and I'm drawing people, whereas, you know, obviously Arlington National Cemetery and the Holocaust Museum, they don't want, you know, Pokemon hunters right. coming to do what they do there. But but if I owned a, a store or a restaurant, I'd absolutely want people playing Pokemon to be drawn to my location. If you were a shop owner or restaurant owner, what 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 questions would you have? What concerns would you have? And and how much do you think these people should be willing to pay? Not an exact dollar amount, but 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 what sort of arrangement do you think works for them that could also be a, a notable revenue source for Nintendo with this game? Yeah, this is an interesting aspect where you know Google might end up regretting that they kind of uh, distance themselves from all of this stuff because they seem like an obvious partner for that kind of thing because they're obviously already set up as a as an ad spend channel for a lot of these companies and they know a lot about businesses and how to drive traffic to businesses and so on but um yeah nintendo was talking today i think about you know using promoted uh, locations and things like that I, i've also on the other hand seen uh, pictures of businesses that have put up signs and saying you know pokemon for paying customers only and that kind of thing where there is a risk that you attract a bunch of people to your location but you don't actually make any money off them and all you really do is have lots of people flooding into your store or restaurant or whatever it is who have no intention of buying anything who just uh, want to come in in order to you know, achieve whatever objectives they have in the game um, and so that could actually be a downside I mean some of those people might stay some of them might buy something maybe they feel a little sheepish about coming into your store to capture a, a character without paying for something while they're there but there is a risk that all you do is drive more traffic that just kind of gets in the way of your paying customers and so I'd be very wary as a business of, of paying for this unless it was somehow um, predicated on a, a revenue share or something like that where you know I only pay you if I see additional business from this and you'd have to set up some way to track that but um, you know, I'd, I'd be careful as a business about trying to attract more people to my store for something that has nothing to do with actually buying anything. Uh, and I think that's going to be the challenge for Nintendo here is you could get a few businesses paying for this, having a terrible experience, and the whole thing dies very quickly. And so it needs to be managed very carefully, and they need to really think through how to ensure that those uh, people that come into the store do actually spend money. It feels like the problems that Foursquare had or even Groupon for that matter, right? Drawing a lot of attention to businesses, but not yeah. necessarily driving revenue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks. That was a fascinating rundown. I'm, I'm curious what the next week will bring. It's been such a news-packed week with that. I, I, I wonder what one more week will do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to our third topic, which is uh, Facebook Live Video. We did talk about Twitter Live Video early, earlier, and one of the most interesting things about uh, these two live video platforms is how differently they're being used and so you know Twitter is very much investing as we were saying earlier in sort of professional and traditional style live video content the sort of stuff that we've always consumed on TV uh, and now moving to a new medium Facebook live on the other hand seems to be attracting a very different kind of broadcasting from you know BuzzFeed's kind of exploding watermelon experiment to uh, the Chewbacca mom um, to various other things and then this past week much more seriously, um, the aftermath of a, a shooting by a police officer um, and uh, everything that's kind of gone along with that. And, and just this week, there was another shooting that was captured live on 
the Facebook live stream. So very different types of content being sharing and that being shared on these two platforms through the live video uh, function. And that raises some interesting questions about kind of was this what the technology was developed for? How does this affect uh, the technology that is being used in this way now? Is this a positive thing or not? And so, Aaron, I'd, I'd like you to kind of kick us off on this discussion here, just kind of talk about some of your thoughts and, and why you wanted to talk about this. Well, it's fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. Um, one is uh, Facebook put itself right in the middle of one of the most heated political issues in our country today. Um, and they obviously didn't do that intentionally with uh, their live video product. I mean, that, I doubt very much that that was their goal. In fact, it, it was clear that, uh, that this was something unexpected for them. Uh, so Diamond uh, Reynolds, who was Philando Castile's girlfriend, who had the presence of mind to start filming uh, the really tragic event that happened last week, she, uh, she not only had the presence of mind to film it, but to use the Facebook Live feature, which I can only assume was something she was already familiar with, having played around with it, because in a moment of such high stress like that, I don't think I could figure out how to navigate a new user interface feature. And so she, it was obviously something she knew and was familiar with. But Facebook, I think, was completely caught off guard by this. Um, the video came down for about an hour. Um, they claimed that it was there was a technical issue with that, which seems like a pretty flimsy excuse, especially because it came up an hour later with a warning about uh, the graphic nature of the video. So you could you had to you had to sort of acknowledge that that you were going to be watching something graphic before the video would roll. Um, you know, Facebook was so surprised by this, um, and I'm curious what internal discussions they've had since then to decide what they're going to do. Now, to, to Facebook's credit, they did put the video back up, and I think that in and of itself kind of speaks volumes about what sort of a future we might see. Now, it, it, it's, you know, cell phone footage has been a thing now for a while, and, and so it's not that this is cell phone footage. It's that this is cell phone footage broadcast live and immediately available without any sort of filter of a news agency. Um, you know, CNN has their 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 reporting, their iReport feature, and they've had that for years, but it hasn't ever produced something like this. Um, there's something about this being baked into a social network that allows a video like what Diamond Reynolds um, filmed last week to just spread almost immediately. Now, obviously, Facebook couldn't get this video out to as many people as it did without the news drawing it to, uh, the attention to it of so many other people. But uh, I, I, it, it's fascinating to me that this could carry so far so quickly um, based on a product that I doubt was ever really intended for this kind of a use. Um, Mark Zuckerberg did release a statement uh, last Thursday, the day after this happened. And uh, I, I think it was very, it was very thoughtful and insightful. And I think it gives you a sense of the way Facebook is going to look at this stuff in the future. Um, he said, "My heart goes out to the Castile family and all the other families that have experienced this tragedy." He goes on to say, "The images we've seen this week are graphic and heartbreaking, and they shine a light on the fear that millions of members of our community live with every day." And then he says, "While I hope we never have to see another video like Diamonds, it reminds us why coming together." to build a more open and connected world is so important and how far we still have to go. And it's that last sentence that really, I think, gives you a sense of the way Facebook is going to be approaching this in the future. And I think that's why you were able to watch a video a few days later of another shooting that was that was broadcast live on Facebook. 
and it is um I don't even have the right words to describe it because there's so many different emotions because so many of these events that are going to be broadcast in the future are going to be so tragic. So I don't know that I have the right words to describe it, but it just feels so important that this is that this is a, an available technology to 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 bring this kind of stuff to light. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a feature of all past news coverage has been that it, it was somewhat manufactured and produced and so on and so even you know when you were going quote unquote live to somebody covering something it was often a reporter talking about stuff that had already happened rather than you know actual footage of things happening right now and so that's the difference here this is entirely raw and that's a word that Mark Zuckerberg used in promoting live video over the last few months I'm not sure this is what he had in mind but the point is this is very raw very real it hasn't been tampered with in any way it's it's kind of coming right out of the camera onto Facebook servers and, and then kind of remaining unchanged there for the most part um, and so it's yeah it's a very new form of uh, sharing a new way of consuming the news in, you know, whether you actually watch it live or whether you see it afterwards because it was captured live, but it's being captured in the moment and it's unfiltered in that sense. It's not produced in any way. Um, it's coming from, you know, personal technology rather than, you know, professional grade technology, but it's perfectly fine for giving you a very clear sense of what's happening in particular circumstances. And it's interesting to me that Facebook and Twitter are part of this movement of allowing people to share stuff in this very unfiltered way, even as both companies are investing more and more in actually filtering and curating what people actually get to see. And so, you know, both Twitter and Facebook now have these algorithmic feeds. You know, at Twitter, there's a while you were away feature and the moments feature. Uh, on Facebook, there's trending topics and there's the news feed that's filtered by algorithms as well. Um, it's an interesting counterpoint to the fact that many of us are actually not seeing a lot of stuff because of those filters and algorithms while at the same time you know these things are available somewhere if we go out looking for them and so it's this funny mix where these platforms are becoming incredibly powerful both in allowing things to be shared and also in filtering what people actually see out of all the possible things they could see um, and it's going to be interesting to see how much they use things like live video and so on as a sort of counterpoint to the narrative about these companies filtering stuff and making it hard for people to see opposing viewpoints and all that kind of thing, which is a real issue right now. And especially when it comes to the aftermath of something like these shootings, you know, we've got various sides, each kind of clamoring for a particular point of view. It's very easy on Facebook to only be exposed to one side of that based on who your friends are and what you seem to be engaging with. Um, and so it's an interesting sort of paradox that, that these platforms are giving us both this uh, unprecedented kind of openness and access to raw uh, news and on the other hand are very much filtering our access in ways that we may not be aware of. Well, and I think what's what's so curious about this to me is that you know Facebook is not seeing itself as an original news source in the way we would think about the news traditionally, right? Where there's a reporter or an editor that is that is crafting and like you said filtering and 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 shaping the news in some cases to uh, to, before it gets communicated to the audience, and and Facebook with with live video for moments like this is essentially standing back and saying, we're not the filter. We are right. we are purely the mechanism by which the video is being communicated, and that's it. And um, there's and, and you know the the funny thing is these tools have been around for a long time, with the exception of two things. One, it being live in a way that's reliable. 
Right. I, I mean, I can only think of Justin TV as, 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 you know, one of the only pioneers in this space. And, and, but that, that brings up the second problem, which is plugged into a social network that, you know, that, that billions of people are using. And, yeah, and so that's the big thing. Right. And so that gives the opportunity for the message to spread without having to go through a news agency that already has an audience that, uh, that they're catering to. And I think if anything has the power to change minds on a topic, for better or worse, it's going to be these kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be where somebody sees the raw version um, without commentary, with, even without context, Right. Um, and they're experiencing as it is in a sense that feels much more real than if it's being communicated by a talking head on CNN or written up in a, in a, in a news blog post. Um, this just, it, you know, where even the video is edited down for various right. reasons. Um, it, it's, it's a fascinating world ahead that way where you have live video plugged into a social network. And uh, I, I think it's going to change the way people see all kinds of things in, in, the, in the years to come. And in fact, this, the pessimist in me is wondering already how people might take advantage of and try to manipulate the rawness because it makes it feel authentic yeah so i don't want to go too far down that because i because i feel no. like it's 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 not worthy of speculation right now but anyway i i i am really curious what the future holds here because it just feels it feels really important mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely I think every medium has always been eventually corrupted by people who take advantage of its seeming sort of realness to create sort of fakery at some point and so there's always potential for that to happen it's harder with live obviously if things really are live um but uh but yeah for now at least seems to be having a very positive effect and um as i said we're not going to debate the sort of politics of this stuff um which are very sort of fraught and um and unfortunately divisive as well but obviously we have huge sympathy with both those who were shot by police officers and then the police officers in Dallas who were shot as well. And so um, I want to make that clear as we wrap up this topic. Um, moving on to uh, our, our weekly pick, which is what we usually finish off our episode with. Um, this is where one of us takes time to recommend something that we've been enjoying. I think our listeners might enjoy as well. And Aaron, it's your turn this week. So this is an app that I was turned on to by... Um, uh, Jim Dalrymple at uh, Infinite Loop, uh, the the blog he uh, pointed this out a couple of days ago. Today there were a bunch of new sites that came out with reviews of the app, and so I wonder if there was a coordinated PR push. But anyway, the app is called Prisma, P R I S M A, um, and uh, you know if you're plugged into tech news, you've probably seen something on it already. But essentially, what the app does is it takes photos or any pictures you take from your phone and applies all the sorts there you know a couple dozen different art filters that are applied to this and when i first heard about the app and was kind of checking out i i was i was reminded of uh you know people who had no business using photoshop taking photos and embossing them or doing other weird things to them applying you know these various free photoshop filters to make them look really horrible um, Prisma is notable because they actually do a pretty great job. Um, you can you can pick, as I said, any number of dozens of different art filters. Um, it it then takes a moment to apply the the filter to your picture, and then you can slide 
to decide how much of it you want to look artistic and meaning there's like a degree of, of artisticness or reality. And so you can kind of slide it up between zero to a hundred percent. Um, they've got, you know, a lot of different styles of art reflected, um, some very modern and postmodern, some very classic, um, comic book styles, um, and, uh, black and white and, and, and a lot of different beautiful colors. And, and I think the real, the reason I was tipped over the edge to actually make this my pick of the week is because my wife has really enjoyed it. Um, and she's had fun using it and making cool looking things. And she's kind of a skeptic when it comes to, I don't know, apps and things like that. And, and for her to find it enjoyable tells me that they've got something special here. And she's also very into art. So, um, so yeah, the app is Prisma right now. It's only available on, uh, the uh, the app store for iOS devices, but my understanding is that uh, an Android version is supposed to be coming out really soon. Great, thanks, Aaron. Uh, yeah, I think later this month is when the Android version is supposed to come out. So we'll we'll include a link to the version on the iOS app store, and those of you on Android devices uh, can hopefully download it when it becomes available in a few weeks' time. Well, thank you for being with us, as always. Um, we're actually going to take a break for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be uh, on vacation with my family, and so um, I will not be available to podcast during that time. So there won't be an episode uh, the rest of July. So enjoy the break. Hopefully you'll get a chance to take some kind of vacation over the summer as well. And uh, we should be back with you the first week in August. And you can always listen to our old episodes in the meantime if you feel so inclined. And again, we have a full listing of past episodes on the site at podcast.beyonddevices where you can also find links to some of the things that we've been talking about today, including the app that Aaron just recommended. So thanks again for being with us. And we look forward to being with you again in August. <laughs>